Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, Good News for the Imperfect. It's where I try to combine two things. First, the gospel, the stories about Jesus of Nazareth, his life and teachings that are recorded for us this season in the Gospel of John. And the second is Wabi Sabi, which is a Japanese expression. Wabi-sabi is the way of finding beauty and imperfection where we recognize and even celebrate the cracks, the natural cycle of growth and decay and all the things that time leaves behind. Wabi-sabi is a form of acceptance and I think the phrase perfectly describes how Jesus related to people. He saw their value in God's eyes, people who were broken, who had rough edges, who were beat up by life who were lost or who were seeking, who were anxious or afraid, they found a deep grace in Jesus. And so this podcast is pretty much a straightforward Bible study, but with a wabi-sabi twist. Good news for the imperfect. Now this season is season one, and this is episode two on Jesus as the light of life. The scripture is going to be John chapter one, verses one through 14. But before we get to that, Did you know that George Lucas, the film director who was responsible for the whole Star Wars empire, he shamelessly admits that he basically stole the idea for the original Star Wars movie from a 1958 classic samurai movie called The Hidden Fortress. It was by director Akira Kurosawa. The two bumbling servants and the brave samurai warrior trying to protect the princess from an evil warlord. Lucas just remixed that same story into a space epic. He followed the standard formula of copy, combine, and transform. In fact, the majority of Hollywood hits really rely on that same recipe. There are very few things that are absolutely original. They're really a variation on something that has come before. What George Lucas was really good at was copying, combining, and then adding his own particular flavor to what was already known. Now, in a sense, that's what I'm doing in this podcast with the Gospel of John. I don't claim to have any brand new, never-before-heard insights into the Bible. Well, maybe a couple. But mostly, I just take what I've gleaned from the many people who have influenced my spiritual journey, and then I do what George Lucas did. I copy, I combine, I add to what I've learned from others. And I just want to acknowledge and thank some of the people who have influenced my understanding of Scripture over the years. These are not all of my influencers, but just some of the main ones some in person, some through friendship, some as professors, and some through their ministries that I never knew personally. Some names you might know, most you probably won't know. So in no particular order, I just want to thank Dave Neednoggle, Dan Russ, Paul Toms, Harold Ockengay, Andrew Lincoln, Gordon Fee, J. Ramsey Michaels, Doug Stewart, Meredith Klein, Richard Lovelace and Gordon Hugenberger, Juan Carlos Ortiz, Jerry Cook, Uh, Roberta Hestinus, Ray Stedman, and especially for the Gospel of John, Bob Mitchell, whose teaching on John really touches every passage. So that's my pedigree, and I really am thankful for the great people God has brought into my life. All right, well, let's get into the Gospel. We're going to take a short step back into last week's opening and then read on through verse 14. This passage will mention another person named John, but he's not the author. He's the one who comes to be known later as John the Baptist, and we're going to look at him in a future episode, so I'm just going to skip over any mention of that John in this particular episode. So here's John 1, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was the light of life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen to that. Hey, did you know that by the best scientific guess right now, that the universe contains about one sextillion stars? That's a one followed by 21 zeros. Frankly, that's a number that's too big for us even to imagine. I mean, and could this unfathomable creation have happened merely by chance? The enormous complexity, the beauty, the design, the intricacy of the universe compels me to believe that there must be some intelligent designer behind it all. We don't even have to look outside ourselves to see this incredible designer at work. The best computer humans can possibly create cannot compare with the complexity of your brain. Your brain is pro capable of, of processing up to 30 billion bits of information per second. If you could stretch it all out, you would have the equivalent of 6,000 miles of computer cable. Your brain contains almost 28 billion neurons that conduct electrical impulses and send signals better than any computer processor. The neurons also communicate with the rest of your body over 100,000 miles of nerve fibers at a speed faster than the blink of an eye. All this, and it runs on a little oxygen in your blood and some glucose. This could not have come about merely through chance and evolutionary mutation. There must be some intelligence behind it all. Something has to be out there. If this is true, then we're faced with an even more difficult question. If there is some intelligence, some higher, higher power out there at the center of all creation, how do we discover what this something is? What is it like? Is it an impersonal energy force that just kind of pulsates throughout the universe? Or is it a divine being that actually cares about my existence? that hears my prayers, that will respond to my needs. Today we have an entire cafeteria of choices to go to, you know, for answers to these questions. There are so many religions, philosophies, options. How do we decide which one is right? Or should I just simply pick and choose the best ideas from this buffet of beliefs? Is my own intuition a reliable guide? What if I'm wrong? You see, the great divide in the spirituality of all religions is this, something that got it all started, is it personal or impersonal? Is this a God who has a will, a purpose, a plan, a direction, who can communicate with mortals? Or is it merely an energy force that permeates the fabric of the universe? Is it a conscious entity or a natural life force, really an unconsciousness, because consciousness would involve having some type of self-knowledge? Is it a being that I can have some type of relationship with or just an anonymous energy 
that is incapable of any kind of relationship. Now, personally, I can't believe that this something is less than human. Any being that cannot think, decide, and choose is less than a human being. As human beings, we can at least imagine, dream, and love. How is it possible that this something is incapable of those functions? How could uh, personality come from something impersonal? How could love arise from something incapable of love? How could creativity come from something incapable of creativity? No, this something, this God, must be more than just a cold energy force. Even more to the point, John, the gospel writer, taught that this mystical God could be known and experienced in a personal way. Imagine that the God who created one sextillion stars desires to be known, desires relationship with his created creatures. In fact, John goes as far as to say that life can only make sense when we have experienced this kind of personal relationship with the God who created us, who got it all started. The radical nature of of John's claim was twofold. Not only was God personal and loving, but that Jesus actually was this God in the flesh. I mean, remember Christmas, angels announcing the birth of the Messiah? That's why Jesus' birth was such a big deal. He was called Emmanuel, which means literally in Hebrew, God with us, God in the flesh. This was a totally radical concept. Even though the idea of God coming to earth as a human being, as the Messiah, even though that was supported in Jewish religious tradition by a thousand years of prophecy and expectation, they said Jesus was blaspheming God by making such an outrageous claim. Jesus committed the worst crime anyone could commit back in that culture. If he was lying, let's face it, he deserved to die. What does this mean for God to become so personal in our world? Could it really be true? Well, I once had a friend named Carl, and Carl had a huge aquarium in his living room. To the fish, Carl was like a deity. He was completely different from them. He was too large for them to understand. His actions were simply incomprehensible to to all his fish, but he took care of them. Their lives depended completely on him. He filtered their light and water. He checked for ozone. He lifted the lid to put the food in. You would think that in view of all the energy and care that he expended on their behalf, the fish, the fish would, <clears throat> would, have, would have been grateful, but no way. Every time he stood over the tank, they dove for cover. He could not convince them of his concern for them. To convince them, he would have had to learn fish language. He would have had to become a fish. This is what John said God did in Jesus. In a sense, it's as though God was saying, I'm not getting through to these people. I've sent the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament scriptures, but nothing is working. I'm going to have to go down there myself. I'm going to have to become one of them so that they're not afraid of me. Now think about it. A human being becoming a fish is nothing compared to God becoming a human being. Imagine the God of one sextillion stars becoming human. That's the outrageous claim that John makes about Jesus and that Jesus made for himself. And it was far from being, you know, a sidelight of Jesus's teaching. This claim to be God in the flesh was the central teaching that Jesus repeated over and over again. Look at a few verses of his claims in these Bible verses, also from the Gospel of John. John 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one and the same. John 10, 37. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does, but if I do it, Even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me 
and I am in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped from their grasp. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You see, this was Jesus' claim over and over again in all the Gospels, not just John. You can see how this would infuriate people. So many people want to position Jesus as a good moral teacher, but then they stop short when it comes to acknowledging him as God in the flesh. But if that claim is false, then Jesus can't be just a good moral teacher. If the main thing he taught was false, then he should be ignored. I mean, God in the flesh, if that's not true, then calling Jesus a good religious teacher is stupid. It's not an option. If his claim is false, he should be dismissed as a charlatan, a fraud, a madman. Put him on the same shelf with all the other false messiahs and cult leaders of the world. Put him beneath Muhammad, who at least never claimed to be God, only God's prophet. Put him below Buddha, who saw himself only as a fellow struggler on the path towards enlightenment. But if this claim is true, think of that. If Jesus really was, really is God in the flesh, if what he taught and lived was the truth about the spiritual world, then we better pay close attention to him. A God who is personal, a God who wants to know you and who wants you to know him, not from a distance, but as the most important and intimate part of your life. Well, how does that happen? John describes it as light. Jesus is the light and his light is the life of all humanity. Well, what does light do? Light, first of all, dispels darkness. You know, you get up in the middle of the night, you have to go to the bathroom, you grope around, you run into things, you stub your toe, you turn on the light, it dispels the darkness. Jesus does that for people. He dispels their darkness. Much of our lives, we're just kind of tripping over things. We wonder if there's any purpose to life, any meaning to it, and Jesus comes into a life and people discover a reason to live, discover their purpose. The light comes on for us. Sometimes suddenly, sometimes over a long period, but the light comes on. It's not necessarily a light that shows you all the way down the path, but it is a light that's bright enough to help you take your very next step. The light also reveals. Light can sometimes cause embarrassment. It exposes what is going on. I don't know if you've ever had the experience as a child of sneaking down to the refrigerator in the middle of the night trying to get some extra dessert, you know, and all of a sudden the light comes on because your dad heard something downstairs. All of a sudden you're caught with your hand in the refrigerator. Well, the light reveals, it exposes. You flip on a light and the rats go running. Light gives us a new conscience. It's harder to cheat on a test when Jesus is in your life. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but it's harder to cheat. It's harder to lie when Jesus is in your life. It ought to be harder. Ought to be harder to be cruel or mean or racist when Jesus is in your life. Sometimes it takes a while for the light to get all the way through, but the light is at work within us. The light of Jesus should begin to work on us, on who we are from the inside out. As Dr. Martin Luther King once said, darkness cannot dispel darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Jesus is the light of life. And when that light comes on, something begins to happen in your soul and you know it. Starting in verse 10, John gives us a startling slap in the face. He says, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. God in person, accepting the limitations of space and time so that he could become a human being. The basic meaning here is that Jesus came to his own people, the Jewish nation, 
the people of Israel, they were the nest that God prepared so that the Messiah could come. They were the people who had been led by God and who had received God's promises, who could explain through their history and through all their religious rituals and traditions what God was doing when Jesus went to the cross and brought salvation to the world. They created a faith language that could explain what God was doing and why the world was so broken and so confused. They prepared the way for God to act in and through Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't intend to start any kind of new religion. He was the fulfillment of everything that the Jewish people had been expecting. He was the completion of the covenant with God. And yet he was rejected, rejected even in his own town. He came to his own, means the Jewish people, but it also means more than that. Because if Jesus is the creator of all, then all belongs to him. And that includes Jews and Gentiles, those are non-Jewish people, alike. Jews and Gentiles alike are his own people. And what follows this rejection are yet some of the most hopeful words. It says, and yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Some of the most hopeful words in the Bible right there. It's an open invitation to all people, all races, all colors, all creeds, all of those across the world through all time. Everyone is invited. It is an open invitation to experience the fullness of God through Jesus Christ. To as many as receive him, he gives the power to become children of God. The statement sometimes confuses people. I mean, aren't we all automatically Children of God? Isn't every person on the planet automatically a child of God? To be a child of God, isn't that true for every person on planet Earth? Well, no. At least that's what the Bible teaches. People have this kind of vague feeling that everybody ought to be a child of God, but that's just kind of our nice feelings. Our culture kind of promotes this vague feeling that everybody's a child of God, but that's just our nice feeling. It's not biblical. Every person is valuable and unique in God's sight. Every person is loved by God equally, every race, every gender, every orientation. However you want to categorize people, they are all made in the image of God and are to be treated with value and compassion. Every person is stamped with the very image of God, as we're told in the creation story. But being a child of God presupposes a special kind of relationship. John says we have to become children of God. We only become a child of God when we recognize God as our Father. And God allows that birth to take place in us as we receive and believe in Jesus Christ. To be a child involves relationship. We have to become God's children through faith in Christ. Now, this goes against our collective cultural wisdom that believes just being born automatically makes a person a child of God. But no, it takes belief and a decision in order to experience that new reality not an automatic thing. So in a sense, John is giving us a summary of what it means to be a Christian, right here in the opening words of his gospel, to receive and to believe in Jesus Christ, to understand Jesus is my creator, to understand that I can be in relationship with him. I believe that there will be many people who need to come to this point of recognition, who need to come to the point of saying, I, I would like to receive and believe Jesus in my heart. I would like to move into this kind of relationship with the God who created me. I, I would like to be a believer. What does this mean for someone to receive Jesus? Well, receiving is a lot like going to the doctor. There are a few things you're going to have to do. First of all, you have to admit you're sick. 
Most of us don't go to the doctor because we happen to be in the neighborhood. We go because we've noticed some symptoms that are telling us something is not quite right. Admitting our need is really the first step in establishing this kind of new relationship with God. In Christian terms, we talk about it as a confession of sin. It doesn't mean we're the worst person in the world, but it means we recognize that something isn't working in me the way I know it ought to be working. Now, what happens when the doctor offers us some forms of treatment? We then have to receive the treatment. We have to submit to it. What good is it if we acknowledge our need and then just go away? We'll take, we'll, we'll take, we'll take about the remedy more. We'll talk about the remedy more when we hit, when we hit John 3.16. The remedy for our sins is the death and resurrection of Christ. The person who looks to Jesus and says, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I receive you in my life. I desire to be your person means that they are turning to Jesus as the solution to their problem, as the cure for their disease. The remedy is not something we can do on our own. It's not self-healing. It's not trying to be a better person. It's not just being good. We receive God's remedy, and that's Jesus. So thirdly, it's admit, submit, and commit. In other words, commit to living for him, turning to him daily in our lives, growing in a relationship with Christ. Without turning to Christ daily, doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation, but oftentimes those symptoms are going to come back, may even be worse than before. We are to walk with, with him daily and grow in that relationship with him. It is Jesus who gives us the power to become children of God. It can be done simply in the quietness of prayer. And if you've never done it, had that kind of heart-to-heart conversation with God, then let me encourage you to do so. It's no special posture required. You can kneel, sit, stand, walk, jump up and down. There's no magic words, no special formula, no incantation. It's just your heart speaking to God saying, if you're real, show me. If you're real, show me. Let me become your child through receiving the love of Jesus into my heart. Cleanse me, forgive me. Let me believe and let me receive. That's what John is saying you need to do that I need to do, believing. It's more than just some mental exercise. There's more than just agreeing with some doctrines or some dogma. Believing is much more than that. I can say I believe that an airplane can fly. I can know all the aerodynamics about the shape of the wings and how the airflow produces lift and all the rest. I can know all that. But in a biblical sense, I don't really believe that an airplane can fly until I get on that plane and let it take me somewhere. Believing in Jesus is like that. When you turn your life over to him, it means get ready. He's going to take you somewhere. So thanks for being a part of Gospel Wabi Sabi today. Be sure and follow this podcast and do me a favor. Tell one person about it this week. Each one reach one. That's one of my expressions. Each one reach one. Just tell one person and see what happens. Take care and God bless.